What time is this session done according to the new schedule? Murray Brett did pick up a sack lunch. <laughs> Let me suggest a topic for next year, I think, of even greater importance than patriarchy as a problem in our churches, sometimes called neuterarchy or eunucharchy. It's called, also called matriarchy. And the number of homes where men are not the heads of their homes and women are the functional heads is ruining, I think, more homes and is the cause of the overreaction of the patriarchy, but that's another message. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this time, this wonderful conference together, this General Assembly, considering your great call upon your church to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh, coming to live a perfect life, die a horrible death, Enduring the judgment of God for the sins that he never committed, but for all the sins of all of his people. That there is not any warm coals left in the ashes of his atonement, for he has made a perfect atonement for all of our sins. It's done, it's complete, it's over. We have the best news ever to be proclaimed upon this planet, and as we have seen in various ways by gifted men, we have had our hearts convicted, thrilled, encouraged, taught, enlightened. May we finish well this morning. Would you send us off with encouragement? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 16 through 20. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Our text this morning will be verse 17, where our Lord says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. The subject that was assigned to me of personal evangelism became uh, blindingly obvious, to use a great phrase from our brother last night. I was converted in January of 1963, excuse me, 1969. I was in my junior year in the university. I had grown up as an Episcopalian. I had heard of the gospel in the Book of Common Prayer. Jesus Christ was God, died on a cross in Calvary. Mickey Mantle was my hero. George Washington was the first president. And what they all had to do with real life, who knew? When I left home, from a nominally, nominally Christian background, I entered the world of the late 60s and sin. And though I'd even gone to special parachurch youth meetings while I was in high school, the gospel of Jesus Christ was never presented. You would have fun and games, check out girls, have a 
five-minute Jesus pill at the end and go home and tell your parents you'd been in a Christian meeting. Later, I became angry toward those people who would not have the courage to tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know that it would have made a difference, but I would have liked to have heard the gospel earlier in my life. I was converted by the grace of God, and I was converted through listening to a recording. I didn't know how to share my faith. I had a good news for modern man and a little booklet, My Heart Christ Home, and I was off and running. I was at a small college in the Midwest in the 1960s. There were still many colleges that were uh, unisex. There were all-girl and all-male colleges. I went to one, and so you went someplace other than school, other than your town. You went off for the weekend to find dates. I had been introduced to a gal through my sister who introduced me to Jesus Christ. But I didn't know of a way to tell my friends about Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ was changing my life. I knew from day one that Christ was my Savior. I woke up on January 2nd, 1969. My eyes clicked open, and I knew for the first time in my life that God was in my life. All bets were off. Everything was different. I now had to live before this God who made everything had sent his son and he had saved me. And so stumbling, fumbling, I went back to college and tried to talk to my fraternity brothers. I lived in, a, in an apartment down the street from our fraternity house. And I'd say, well, come over to my apartment. I want to share something with you. And so I would play this record. For those of you who are younger, there used to be these black plastic things with a hole in the middle. And a needle would come down. And somehow, magically, there were grooves in this black plastic, and it would be transferred through the needle to things, and there would be a dog listening to a phonograph. Anyway, so back in these olden times, we would listen to records, and this was a, not a 45, not a 33, but a 16 RPM record. It went on forever. But it was the gospel on that record, and it changed my life. So my fraternity brothers would come in, and I'd say, here, listen to this message. Out of decency and being my friends, they would listen to it. They had different reactions, but one of my friends, one of the first ones said, well, I think I understand what they're talking about. And they encouraged you to pray a prayer at the end. And I've prayed a prayer like that six, eight, ten times. Nothing ever happened to me. Reaching into my deep bag of apologetics and biblical knowledge. You must just have a harder heart than me. I actually said that. <laughs> and he was, we were good enough friends, he just shrugged it off. He goes, I don't know, but it didn't work for me. I did, other, if it wasn't in the good news for modern man and the pictures and this record, I didn't know what to say. Well, this was on a Thursday. The school I went to was academically oriented, so every plus and minus counted. If you got an A, it was a 9. If you got an A minus, it was an 8, and all the way down to 0. And so people were always busting themselves to get good grades. And so Monday through Friday, you booked it, and then you partied out of your mind all weekend. That was the routine. So I was used to hearing screaming drunks, but you never heard screaming drunks during the week. But when I opened the front door of my fraternity and stepped in the foyer, I heard a screaming drunk. I go, well, this is only Thursday. What's the deal? And I stopped and listened. I could finally articulate what he was saying, or I could finally hear what he was saying. And he, this person was yelling out, 
I'm going to go to hell and nobody can help me. It was my best friend that I had witnessed to a few hours earlier. I felt about this tall. So I went and found him, poured some coffee down him, gave him a shower, clothed him, took him back to his apartment, put him to bed. And I prayed that God would have mercy on me. How do I talk to people about Jesus Christ? And how do I answer their questions? And how do I not make bumbling, foolish, stupid, arrogant uh, statements like that? Well, uh, within a month, I was invited to go to Florida with a parachurch ministry. They had found out there was a Christian at my college. They recovered. They came to see me. They said, we'd like to start a ministry at your campus. Would you like to uh, go to Florida? I said, yes. The tragedy of my college is the tragedy of our country. J. Edwin Orr, in A Course on Revivals, taught us in 1832, seven Presbyterian laymen and ministers knelt in the woods of West Central Indiana to dedicate this spot to the glory of God and the teaching of his word. And they named it Wabash College. In 1965, Playboy magazine had rated it the best place to go in the Midwest for a party on the weekend. So I went to Florida with people I didn't know. And it was Campus Crusade for Christ, and they had their four spiritual laws training, they had Bible lectures, they had all the typical Campus Crusade stuff. And I learned some basic, rudimentary, see Jesus run kind of simple evangelism. I don't mean to be irreverent toward our Lord, but it was that kind of simple one. And it was profound to me. We sang uh, what are now, you know, rather superficial and shallow songs, but when you're a baby Christian, it's profound. But my friend I knew was leaving to go to study at a Goethe Institute, or study in Freiburg at a Goethe Institute, and he wasn't going to be around, and I knew he was going to get killed on the Autobahn in Germany, and his blood was going to be on my head. But I prayed he wouldn't get killed. I prayed that he would come back from his semester abroad. And then I found after a few weeks, he dropped out of the Goethe Institute, and he was hitchhiking around Europe trying to find himself. So I prayed that God would bring him back alive and that God would give me the grace next fall at the beginning of our senior year when we both came back that I would be able to talk to him again. In the text before us today, Christ has a call to discipleship. I'm going to briefly try to show you what does it mean to follow Christ in our text. And then second, Christ's call to follow him says, if you follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. Kind of an if-then. If you follow me, and I'm calling you to follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Those are my two main points. The first main point, Christ's call to discipleship. What does it mean when Christ says, follow me? Christ calls true Christians to believe in him, to turn from their own ways, to, to repent, to follow him in a life of obedience and submission. This is not rock and science. This is basic biblical Christianity. If you follow Christ, that means you turn away from the way you are living and you follow where Christ through his word shows you that you should be going. The Greek word for disciple means both to be a follower and a learner. Christ was calling disciples. If you study a, a um, harmony of the Gospels or just do a careful study of the four Gospels here, this was not the call to become apostles. But out of the people who were following Christ, he was challenging them. Some of them, he says, 
okay, I want you to follow me more. I want you to follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. Does that sound like something you want to become? A disciple is both a learner and a follower. Now, false Christians will take the name of Christ, but they will never follow Christ. They will never leave what they want to do, their agenda, their whatever, and follow Christ and submit their life and fit their life into his agenda. Christ's call is not for a negotiated settlement. It's not for anything but unconditional surrender. We dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. The Japanese started saying, well, we still want to keep our emperor. We still want to do this. We still want to do that. The argument to them was no, no conditions at all. Unconditional surrender. They dropped a second bomb on Nagasaki, which, by the way, was the second target for the day. And one of the great what-ifs of history, there was another city that was supposed to receive that second atomic bomb, but it was clouded over and they dropped it on Nagasaki. Well, when the second atomic bomb hit, they were jolted and they said, we will surrender unconditionally. Have mercy on us. God calls us to that kind of unconditional surrender. Not when and if it's convenient, not if it fits in with your personal agenda or the comfort level of your life or your personality or your temperament or your background or your upbringing. It's unconditional surrender and fitting your life into Christ's agenda. It's the same thing that our Lord says in Matthew 11 when he says, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then what does he say after that invitation? Take... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. Take my, what is a yoke? That means an older, more, more experienced oxen, a trained oxen, we put in the yoke with a young buck, a young oxen, and no matter where the young oxen wants to go, the yoke will make him conform to the will of the more mature, stronger oxen. Christ says, you put your head in the yoke with me and you go where I and the yoke take you. What does that mean? Follow me. In Romans 12:1, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, on the basis of 11 chapters of the mercies of God to give your life unconditionally, to submit yourself unreservedly, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. I know this is the General Assembly. I know you're all wonderful people. Have you ever sat down and written out the will of your life? Have you ever written in the flyleaf of your Bible? I, I relinquish the control of my life. My life is no longer my own. I've been bought by my Lord Jesus Christ. I give up the title deed to my life. He is the one who's calling the shots forevermore. Have you ever done that? Well, that just sounds kind of like some kind of parachurch thing they'd have you do. I don't care. Have you ever done it? Well, uh, yeah, kind of, sort of. Well, kind of, sort of, yes or no. Have you ever done that? Have you ever sat down and soberly looked at your life and relinquished control? I mean, I talk to seminary students who say, yeah, I'll serve Christ if it's somewhere between Virginia and Mississippi, but I don't want to go up north and be with the Yankees. I know, seriously, I'm not joking. I know seminary students who won't go outside the United States. Well, I just don't feel comfortable. I just want to stay here where it's easy. I didn't understand that was part of the package. I just thought you were to put your head in the yoke and follow Christ. If the yoke leads you to go to France, if the yoke leads you to go to Georgia, wherever, 
you need to follow. But you don't put conditions on the Lord and say, I will submit and obey as long as it's easy, as long as it's comfortable, as long as my personality likes it, and as long as my background finds it okay. Many times it's recorded in the Gospels that Jesus commanded people to leave their agendas and follow me. Do a study on follow me. Matthew 4.19, the parallel passage to the one we have here. Jesus finds men fishing. He's seen them in the crowds before. They've already been disciples a while. But now he says, let's up the ante. I want you to follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men, not fishers of fish. As Thomas Boston said, the art of man fishing. In Matthew 9, he calls Matthew or Levi. The same thing. Leave your tax collector booth. There's bigger things I want you to do. I want you to follow me and fish for men. In John 1.43, he calls Philip to follow me. In fact, many times Christ instructed the crowds that true discipleship equals following Christ. In Matthew 10.38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16.24, if anyone would come after me as a follower... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In the great passage in John 10, the difference between a true shepherd and a false shepherd, it has to do with the quality of the sheep. Jesus says, regarding the true shepherd, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. Later in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you're not following Christ, you're not a disciple of Christ. I don't care what your pedigree is and how long you've been a professing Christian. To be a disciple means that you're following Christ. Today, are you following Christ? Christian discipleship is dying to yourself, setting aside, as I've said, your private agenda, your wishes, your personal makeup, and surrendering all of your rights to Jesus Christ. I ask you again, have you ever sat out sat down and written out a will of your life and surrendered all of your rights to Jesus Christ. There was an older booklet, a book published by Moody, by a missionary lady named Mabel Williamson, entitled, Have We No Rights? Well, you're supposed to surrender your rights. Slaves don't have rights, don't do that. They, they totally submit to their master. Does any slave function as a slave who has a bill of rights he gives to his master and said, well, I don't work on Saturdays or Sundays and I get every third Monday off and, you know, they have no rights. It is a once and for all decision that's revisited over and over and over. Every time the Lord puts his finger on an area of your life and says, you're not following me here. Yeah, well, kind of, sort of, it's not really comfortable, it's not me. Well, I know it's not you, and I want it to become you, so I want you to repent and bring your life into conformity with my word. And you can either choose to do that and repent, or you can live in disobedience and passive-aggressive rebellion, but you're not following Christ. And if there's enough of your life that you're not following Christ, then it puts a big question mark over the validity of your profession of faith. Christ called a discipleship takes precedence over every human priority. In Matthew 8.22, our Lord tells an interested but distracted man, you follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. He tells the rich young ruler in Matthew 19.21 to go and sell all you have, give your money to the poor, and then you come follow me. Throw away your big idol and you come follow me. 
Christ's call to people after they failed and horribly backslidden, as it was to Peter in John 21:19. Peter, follow me. When a disciple is jealous over Christ's treatment of another disciple, and seemingly this disciple is going to have a better deal than you have, if it's my will that John remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Christ says that the only way to live and find life and happiness in this world is to follow him. John 8:12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you follow Christ, life makes sense. You can see. You can have discernment. You can see what's beautiful and good and desirable, what's evil and wrong. Christian discipleship is in its essence a simple saying no to yourself and following Christ. It's to wear the yoke with Christ, to let him lead, let him teach, let him train you how to live. It's 24-7, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year for the rest of your life. Following Christ is not to live a compartmentalized life whereby my church life and personal devotions are separated into watertight compartments from my marriage or job or school or hobbies or leisure. Following Christ is the whole of your life, every facet of your life, for the rest of your life. Are you following Christ? My second point, my major second major point has eight subpoints, so each of them will get a short shrift, but hopefully together they'll make sense. Christ's call to discipleship, he says, follow me. Now these were men who were already professing believers, they were already following Christ in a sense, but he was upping the ante and says, Okay, if you want to go on, he was not yet to call apostles, but he was finding out if you're not willing to speak of me, then you're not willing you're not going to be chosen to be an apostle. Go back and look at the chronology. He challenges men to speak for him before he later chooses some of these men who are willing to do that to become apostles. Follow me and I, Christ himself, will make you become fishers of men. My first subpoint: All who follow Christ are promised to be trained to become fishers of men. All people who truly follow Christ, he promises, will be trained to become fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you. I will make you become fishers of men. It's not just for ministers of the gospel. It's not just for evangelists. It's not just for missionaries. It's for all disciples. Turn to a passage that we've bludgeoned you with by the grace of God all week. Acts 8. David Campbell did a fine job last night of reminding us that repetition aids learning. And there must be something about this that the Lord wants us to hear. Book of Acts chapter 8. We know that Saul was ravaging the church and persecuting people. Acts 8, verses 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered, I've been told that some would make an argument that these were ministers. I think we normally, if an Arminian said that, we'd normally call it eisegesis. But if a Reformed person says it, we says, well, that's an alternative reading. But uh, uh, it's called special pleading. There's nothing in the context that would make it to be ministers that I've seen, nor have any of the commentaries I've consulted seen. Now, those who were scattered, interesting word scattered in the parable of the sower. It says the sower goes and he sows his seed 
Same word. Now, those who were being sown about went about preaching the word. I think a couple of men have pointed out that's not the normal word for preaching. The noun kerux or keruso. And this is the word euangelizomai, evangelizing. It wasn't just they were gospeling. That's a Middle English. They were evangelizing. Those who were being scattered and sown about were evangelizing the word. They were going about speaking the word. These were laymen, possibly elders, possibly deacons, possibly everybody. It was not simply ministers. They were going about evangelizing as they were scattered from Jerusalem. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the normal word for preach, Kerox and Caruso, proclaimed to them the Christ, etc., now, there's a spiritual principle here in verses 4 and 5. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. The heat was applied by persecution. The saints were, ex, expo, ex, let's see, what would it be? If it's expulsion, anyway, they were expulded. What would that be? My, I'm preaching, so my mind's kind of, I'm short. They were shot out from, they were sent out under extrusion to places they didn't want to go, but the Lord wanted the gospel to go there. God was using persecution to scatter the saints for the sowing of the gospel. Laymen were evangelizing. It's not just for pastors. Becoming fishers of men is just one more facet of being a disciple. If you're a true disciple, being a personal evangelist, being able to witness and articulate the gospel is part of being a disciple. It's not a higher echelon disciple. It's not a green beret. It's not a Navy SEAL disciple. It's just an ordinary disciple. Following Christ means obeying Christ's word in every area of your life, even the word to evangelize. Too often, even after we're converted because of the pervasive nature of sin, I wish there had been a good book written in the last 100 years on the doctrine of sin, but as I study and think about sin, how incredibly pervasive, always at work, it's been at work at this conference, it's working even now, it's worked in every message you've heard, to kind of film your mind and get you a little tired. Boy, maybe if I went and ate something and came back, I'd, I'd do better. All kinds of ways sin is working. But sin is always at work to cause us to not apply the Scriptures to our lives. And we can do this. Well, I'm not a people person. I don't meet strangers easily. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I was trained in it. I did it a lot, and I learned to do it. But I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm not a personal evangelist. But I've been trained to do it, and I've made myself do it. And it's just part of being an obedient Christian. It's like, do you have the gift of giving, or does that mean you don't tithe if you don't have the gift of giving? Well, of course not. You know, I'm not a great reader, so I don't have personal devotions. I don't articulate my thoughts well, so I don't pray. I mean, that's hogwash. Christ's school of discipleship transforms all who follow him into fishers of men. I mean, I challenge you to study that text. I will make you become fishers of men. It's a lifelong project. You don't get a once and for all fisherman zap and kind of go, whoa, now I can just find myself just talking so easily and fluently and eloquently with people. I can butcher the gospel and... And get mangled just as easily as you can. 
But it is a lifelong journey of following Christ. And he states that if I am truly having my head in the yoke with him, he will make me to become fishers, a fisher of men. Then that means, conversely, if you're not fishing for men, you are not following Christ. I mean, is my logic faulty? Is that some kind of medieval sophistry? Hey, what are you trying to pull on us? Well, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. Well, I'm not fishing for men. Then the first part doesn't work either, that I'm not following Christ. It's interesting that Christ waited to see if men would follow him to become fishers of men before he chose some of them to become apostles. Second subpoint: Becoming fishers of men includes becoming prayers for men's souls. John 15:16. I was in a full-time evangelistic work for better part of 10 years. And I don't have the gift of evangelism. But and it's hard work. And how in the world is this going to happen? And you know, you say, well, I'm going to read evidence that demands a verdict, and then I'm going to read Cornelius Van Til. And then I'm going to read all these arguments for the existence of God. And I can answer every question. Try that. (laughs) They don't care what you say. Their heart is as hard as a brick. But I'm reading in my devotions one morning, John 15, 16. And the Holy Spirit gave me great encouragement. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, comma, the kind that remains, semicolon, that, introduction of a purpose clause, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So, let me think. Uh, let's see. I'm supposed to uh, bear enduring fruit, and if I pray about it, God will give it to me. And I had been trying to learn to work really hard. It's my first job out of college. I'm trying to learn to work really hard. And, you know, just beating your head against a brick wall, you get a bloody, scabby forehead. But this verse says, I can pray and ask the Lord to give me enduring fruit. And I did. I moved from California back to Indiana. I was living in Indianapolis, starting what was amounting to a church plant. And I was working really hard, had zillions of contacts and wasn't seeing any fruit. I read this text early in March of 1973. I began to pray that the Lord would raise up fruit. In the next week, I saw three men converted who become the foundation of my future ministry. One's a PCA minister now in Florida, and the other two are laymen in evangelical churches in the Midwest. The goal of our man fishing is catching men for Christ, but I don't have the power to make Christians, and I don't have the power to arrest people's attention. I need to pray, Lord, you know who they are. Would you give me enduring fruit, the kind that remains, the kind that abides? Our Lord says, you have not because you ask not. And the two things I think I needed to learn desperately is to be a really hard worker and to be a really hard prayer. Now, because my personality is kind of manic depressive or bipolar or whatever it is, I'm kind of... Half of me is, I'll be in a book, and half of me wants to be over here meeting with people. And to work hard, and to pray hard, and to keep that in perspective is, uh, is a hard thing to do. Because I'm talking to people when I should be praying, or I'm praying when I should be talking to people, and I never get it quite right. But I have to be doing both. If I'm just working myself to the bone, but I'm not praying, 
Well, what is that? But if I stay home and pray and ask God to do something, but I'm not out talking to people about Christ, it's not going to happen. Third, looking to God the Holy Spirit's enablement to make you make your fishing effective. Haven't most of us in these messages emphasized in one form or another your absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit? I thank God for many things I learned in my Campus Crusade days. There were some many things that were wrong. I left Campus Crusade when I came to the Doctrines of Grace. But I don't pour scorn on all of my years of ministry with them. I learned many valuable things. And one of the things they hammered in our heads is without the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing. John 3, 7, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You know, you heard the joke about uh, Billy Graham being on a flight one time and there was a drunk on that same flight who the stewardess couldn't control and trying, you know, like some grandmother saying, you need to calm down because Billy Graham's on this flight. Like, what, that's going to sober you? So uh, he goes, Billy, Billy's on this flight. So he goes, I just made it worse. So he kind of meanders his way down the aisle looking for Billy Graham, and Billy's kind of looking out the window. Billy, I just want you to know that I'm one of your converts. (laughs) Billy Graham said, that's obvious because you're not one of Christ's converts. I don't want to make converts to myself. I don't want people to like me if they don't love my Savior. But that which is born of the flesh is just flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus told the disciples, Wait until you're clothed with power from on high. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Have you ever preached in the flesh? Have you ever heard this braying sound simultaneously to preaching? That's preaching in the flesh. Have you ever tried to talk to people in the flesh? One time I was at a basketball game, and I was sitting there, and I was watching the game, and the lady next to me says, which of the team are you rooting for? I said, this. which player are you rooting for? I said, well, I, I don't have any relatives. I'm just here. Really? What are you doing here? Well, I work with students. Well, what do you do with students? I tell them about Christ. I was, I was, I was off duty. I, I wasn't... Ma'am, I'm not here to witness. I'm here to enjoy a basketball game. I didn't say that. That was my carnal heart. She says, well, what do you tell them? Here, read this. <laughs> I can tell you how I do everything wrong. So I'm watching the game, and she's going through it. And she's going through it page by page. Oh, my house. The knife was in. It was turning. I was so convicted. So finally, I kind of stopped and prayed, and I said, well, ma'am, do you understand what you're reading? And then, she was a Mormon. And then we were into it. And pretty soon, we were yelling so loud, the people in the stands were turning around and looking at us. I wanted to grab her by the head. <laughs> I said, finally, I said, ma'am, this, is, this isn't doing anybody any good. It's a bad testimony for Christ. Forgive me. I'm leaving. Got up and left. Went down to the corner of the gym where there's a basketball coach, a football coach I was working with. And he says, you look terrible. What happened? I said, I just talked to this lady. She was terrible. She would rip off my arm, beat me over the head with a bloody stump. He said, just I know who she is. It's Mrs. So-and-so. She's 10 feet behind you and she's coming toward us. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, you can't punch out a lady in a basketball game, but I almost did. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones tells at the end of Authority of a village in Wales that had a pastor from another village come and preach the gospel to the whole town. And the three pastors of the local church were there. Most of the congregations were there. And the speaker was late. So they told a servant girl, would you go back and get him? So they went, she went to the house where he was staying and she came back in a couple of minutes and she said, well, he's talking to someone. How can he be talking to someone? Go back and tell him he must come. He must come now. It's time. It's past time. So she went back and she came back in a few minutes. Well, what did he say? Well, I didn't want to interrupt him. I could hear him talking to someone. Well, how can he be talking to someone? Everybody in the village is here. What was he saying? She said, well, I heard him say very clearly, if you will not come with me, I will not go preach to those people. And the minister said, oh, we'd better be quiet and wait and let him come. They knew that this man wanted the authority of the Holy Spirit when he stood up to preach. But I need the authority of the Holy Spirit to talk to people or I can get in fistfights or I can get in intellectual arguments or anything but speaking the gospel to them in the fullness of the Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit can make our witness powerful, fluent, effective, life-transforming, or we can grieve or quench the Spirit and do it on our own carnal flesh and you have people arguing. Fourth, this dovetails with something Fred was saying in his, me- his message. Living a gospel-centered life is the best means of being ready and able to fish for men. You living a gospel-centered life is the best means of being prepared to witness for men. I'm a great sinner. Everyone said, Amen. Okay. And I need to preach the gospel to myself, not just every day, but sometimes several times a day. But if I don't preach the gospel to myself very often, I'm not thinking the gospel. I'm not thinking of what's involved when it comes to talking to people. I'm actually talking about something I'm not experiencing and I'm not looking to myself. People who say, well, you know, I wouldn't know what to say to talk to someone about Christ reveals they don't preach the gospel to themselves. Well, tell me, what do you do when you sin? Where do you take your sins? Do you just go for weeks and months and do nothing with them and then kind of drag yourself through a communion service and mumble a few I'm sorry's and then go back? What do you do? We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I've taught my people, if nothing else, that 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin. Where? cross. You mean at the cross, Jesus was becoming sin. He was being made sin. He was counted as the all-time ultimate sinner. The penultimate sinner. He was being counted as sin incarnate. For God made Him who knew no sin to become sin that we, who's we? Believing sinners, Jews or Gentiles, the Steve Martins of this world, that God would make Him who knew no sin to become sin that we, believing sinners, might become the righteousness of God in Him? You mean I could preach to those people at the General Assembly even though I'm a great sinner? Even if I hadn't had the best week in my life? Even though I'm not perfect? Even though I'm not the world's greatest pastor? You mean I could speak to them based upon Christ's righteousness? You mean I can pray at the end of a crummy day trusting in Christ's righteousness, not the kind of day I had? But I need to be a person who's living in the thraldom of the gospel myself. 
If I'm not, then witnessing is going to be kind of a dislocated, artificial thing that's really not a part of my life. But if you're living a gospel-centered life, it makes you tender and sympathetic towards sinners. Had a man come to our church and from a Hispanic background, and we were starting one of our Wednesday night small groups, and we were going to be studying Jerry Bridges' Transforming Grace, which is a great book. But I could tell from the very first night he didn't have a clue, and he was chiming in because he was in a religious meeting, and I used to be an altar boy and an acolyte, and I did all these things, and I was great in the Catholic Church, and, and I'm a really religious person, and your church is lucky to have me attend. I go, oh, man. I tell you what, as an introduction to starting Transforming Grace, we're going to watch for six weeks The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. God was like this. And every week he chirped a little bit less about what a great person he was and how great things he'd done for God. By the time we got to the last couple of weeks, he said zero. He sat and ate in silence. And then we read the first chapter of Transforming Grace, which talks about being saved by grace. And he came that night and he goes, I sat out in the parking lot today at lunch and ate my lunch and I finished reading the chapter for the second time and I have no idea what it's talking about, but this poem thing at the end, nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Then he said, I got it. We're saved by Christ. We're not saved by our good work. We're saved by Christ. And then he says, I've been deceived for 35 years by my church. He always let the council eat reach his own conclusions. Number five, leave the results in God's hands for fruit bearing as his work. One of the great discouragements of personal evangelism is you, everybody you talk to doesn't get down on one knee and say, Father, I thank you for this opportunity today to trust Christ to this wonderful servant. That never happens. And you have all kinds of experiences witnessing for Christ. And if you're looking for results as the motivation to keep you going, you'll stop after a while. Christ is called to be faithful. It's not your job to be fruitful. It's his job to bring about the fruit. God works when he wills, how he wills. No human being can generate a spiritual life. Now, I know you know that, but even as you teach your people and you are involved in personal evangelism, if that's not clear in your head... Success in witnessing is preaching, speaking the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Paul told the Corinthians, hey, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So don't get excited about either one of us particularly. The pressure is taken off when you realize that success at man fishing is leaving the results in God's hands. It removes also the temptation to be carnally manipulative, somehow trying to get them to do something. The harvest belongs to God Almighty. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ said, in fact, I think it should be capitalized in our Bibles because I think he was giving our Father a title. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, the master of the harvest. You men are out there and he's the Lord of the harvest and he will bring it about. Number six, train your people to become fishers of men. Train your people to become fishers of men. Jesus called the twelve and later the seventy or seventy-two, depending on what version you read, to follow him. Later, he would send these men out as specially appointed men. He would send out the twelve apostles and the seventy or seventy-two others. In September of 1973, there was an article in Eternity magazine that grabbed my attention and has never left me. The article was entitled, Would Jesus Stoop to Canned Evangelism? So I read it very eagerly because... 
I was doing and teaching canned evangelism. And he said, I grew up in university. He said, we studied Jesus, the master evangelist. Jesus, who never treated any two people the same, was nuanced, careful, sensitive, sophisticated. None of this mechanical stuff for Jesus. But this uh, author who was a missionary with Latin American Mission spoke of his further studies of the New Testament and reading in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus was sending out the 70. He said, it stunned stunned me to see that Jesus as the trainer of baby evangelists was very canned, so to speak, compared to himself as the master evangelist. When he sends out the 70, he says, here's where to go, here's what to take, here's where to stay, here's what to do if they don't serve you kosher food, here's what to do if they reject you. Boom, 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 boom. Here's all the things you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. And he said, I realized that Jesus as the trainer of baby evangelists was different than the Jesus as the mature, seasoned master evangelist. You don't teach people to paint by saying, here's a Mona Lisa, here are several of the Dutch masters, here's a paintbrush, go get them, tiger. That's not how you learn to paint. In fact, the way I learned to paint, you give them a brush, you show them how to hold the brush, then you show that this number goes with this color. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. So, so ochre is nine. Okay. Oh, oil. John Nagy learned to draw. How many of you grew up in the 50s and watched television? Oh, I'm sorry. Not too many. Uh, that's how you teach people. Teach people to use sound gospel tools. Uh, you go, well, there's not a perfect one. Well, so what? You're going to hide in your office behind the fact? Well, there wasn't any perfect tools, so I never trained my people. Take something that's pretty good and make it better. Take evangelism explosion. Take Ray Comfort's The Way of the Master. Take something, you know, well, look what I have here. I have my briefcase. I'm going out. I leave the house. My briefcase always has a bunch of tracks in it. There's enough tracks, I can play cards with them. Okay. (laughs) Not Faith but Christ by Horatius Bonar. Coming to Faith in Christ by John Benton. Alive or Dead by J.C. Ryle. Reasons Why Some Will Not Come to Christ by Al Martin. The Unanswerable Question by Jeff Thomas. Not the Way I Used to Be by Rob Spinney on The New Birth. How God Saves Men by Donald Barnhouse. Preguntas Ultimas, my favorite ultimate questions, my favorite evangelistic tool. Can We Be Good Without God for Certain Types of People by John Blanchard. Is God Unfair by J.I. Packer. What's going on out there? For somebody who doesn't understand sin, a booklet about sin. Which Way to God by Peter Jeffrey for people who've gone through the blender of this culture. Find a tool. Teach your people to use a tool. The interesting thing is the first, when I first learned to share my faith, it was like, see Peter run. Wait a minute. See, okay, I got Peter run. Okay, I got that. And it was real, you know, you're just a baby. You're just learning. But it wasn't very long with it. I could take a very simple tool like the four spiritual laws, which don't go ballistic. I know it's not a perfect tool. It has a lot. Okay. But 
I could make it an hour-long presentation and hardly even refer to the four spiritual laws. The point is, find some tool and teach your people to use it so they have some handles to draw on. After a while, they'll barely be using the tool because they'll understand the gospel more clearly, particularly if you're preaching the gospel to them and they're preaching the gospel to their own hearts. Most of your people will not get stuck and simply be booklet readers. Most of your people will go on to become able to articulate their faith. When I moved to Indiana for high school, I'd grown up playing baseball in warm weather and football in cool weather. In Indiana, if you only play those two sports and you don't play basketball, you are a nerd. So I said, I'll learn to play basketball. So I went out and I really worked at playing basketball. And they said, yeah, that's fine, except you don't use your left hand. I said, yeah, my baseball glove goes in my left hand. When you hold a hot dog, you hold it in your left hand, you put the mustard on it. And um, yes, I have a left hand. They go, you have to use both hands to play basketball. But I'm not left-handed. They said, deal with it. So, have you ever tried to learn to play basketball with your offhand? Okay, I'm going to dribble. <laughs> and you have to watch the ball, and you're terrible. You're terrible. It stinks. It's painful. You go up for a layup like this. <laughs> you go, I have no idea where the ball's going to go. But I kept at it, and I kept at it, and I kept at it, and I kept at it. And after a while, taking the ball up the court with my left hand was just mechanical. I didn't think of it. I didn't look at the ball. In fact, I ended up getting to be a little bit better with my left hand than my natural right hand because I worked at it. And I could make left-handed layups on a fast break. And if you gave me the ball on the pivot, I could go to my right and make a left-handed uh, little layup. What's the point? I'm not left-handed. But I could train myself to use my left hand and not be a geek with my left hand playing basketball. You can train people to be personal evangelists who don't have the gift of gab, who aren't the most articulate people in the world, but they can learn it. Two final points and we'll quit. Thank you for your patience. Number seven, follow the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. There's a biblical principle that Paul articulates in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, but the background for it is the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25 one gives freely and yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Whereas Paul takes these and applies them to giving in 2 Corinthians 9.6, he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. If you're a farmer, again, this is not rocket science. You go out with one bushel of seed, corn, and you plant it in so whatever land you have. You're not going to get as much back as if you take out six bushels of seed, corn, and plant it. And there's a spiritual principle there. If The more you witness, the more you're going to see fruit. There's a spiritual principle of sowing and reaping. The more generous you are at sowing, whether the Lord's money or giving of yourself or witnessing, the more you will receive back. Minimal sowing equals minimal reaping. Abundant sowing equals abundant reaping. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, the Holy Spirit worked by percentages. 25% of the people you witnessed to ended up repenting and believing, just arbitrarily. So you're out witnessing and you witness three times and you go, well, no one's come to Christ. I guess I don't have the gift and I'm just going to quit. Well, maybe you should witness a fourth time. If you witness a hundred times, do you think you'll see more fruit than if you witness three times? Yeah. 
So shouldn't we observe the biblical principle that the more we witness, the better it is? We could. I carry all these things around me with me because I don't know who I'm going to sit next to on the plane. I know the UPS man. He brings books to my house. We're on a first name basis. I give him the guy who went came to deliver some bricks. Got a chance to talk to him. Got a chance to give him a couple things. He came back the next day because he'd given me some wrong bricks. He goes, I read those books last night and gave one of them to my wife. Do you have any more of those? Well, matter of fact, I'd have some more of these booklets. We had a chance to talk about the Lord for about an hour. All the people the Lord puts into your life, as someone says, he's put you into their world. He's put you into their world. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. To be prepared to sow broadly to whoever the Lord brings into your life. I have to cut these back. My final point, number eight, persevering and following Christ and becoming fishers of men. Whatever you have to do, you have to persevere at it. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good in general. For in due season we shall reap if we do not give up. Paul is applying the principle here to sanctification, persevering in godliness. But it's a basic general principle. You persevere at, you persevere at parenting. You persevere at witnessing. We must persevere at following Christ and persevere at becoming fishers of men. I had to persevere in learning to use my left hand in basketball. I became proficient with my left hand in basketball. I'm not any great athlete. I just practiced. Larry Bird, when he was playing professional basketball, had the highest rated average of any free throw shooter, 91 and a fraction percent. On off days, he shot 1,500 free throws. On off days. How did he get to be such a great free throw shooter? He wasn't the world's most coordinated soul as you watched him. He had a certain angularity to him. He wasn't the most graceful NBA player. But he practiced and practiced and practiced. Persevere at it. Maybe you're taught to learn a language. You first start. You move to France. Boy, I heard what Olivier said. and I'm going to move to France. So you said, well, I've got to learn to, learn to speak French. So we find a small village and we have immersion French language learning. It's awkward. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It's embarrassing. Boy, people slap you for saying insulting things. What did I say? Well, oh, I didn't mean to say that. That's what language learning is like. And then one day, after several months or a year, you pass through a barrier and you're thinking in French. And you find yourself articulating words and getting the nuances and the tones right. And it's like, I just kind of passed this barrier and I'm speaking French and they're not slapping me. This is great. It's a breakthrough. Fishing is not for the impatient. It takes faithful Working, due diligence. You can fish all night, as the disciples learn, and catch nothing. But you keep on fishing. By the way, that man I mentioned early on, my friend, he came back in the fall. We got together, first day of preschool. I said, tell me how your time in Europe was. If I was in Munich or Istanbul or Barcelona, I was the same guy. The problem wasn't where I was. The problem was me. So I had learned enough in the case cause of the next nine months that had intervened or six months. And I sat him down and we went through the gospel together and I explained what saving faith was. And he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
And one day, seven years later, we were eating dinner and the phone rang and, yeah, he's here just a minute. Honey, it's for you. It's Greg Jackson. Oh, Steve, remember me? Sure. Well, as you know, I went to law school in Montana and I'm a criminal lawyer in Missoula and when guys are facing time in the slammer, they're interested to talk about other options and I can tell them about Jesus Christ. But my wife and I are dear Christians. The Lord's been gracious to us. Thank you for witnessing me in college. And I thought of what a flubadub I had been trying to talk to him initially, but God provoked me to learn to share my faith so I could get back to him later. And so here he is, a Christian lawyer in Missoula, Montana, because I was a flubadub and attempting to witness to him and learned finally how to do it a little bit better. Become fishers of men. Persevere at it. People will stand in heaven and they'll say, that man, that woman, they told me about Jesus. But I didn't listen to them, but someone else later told them. My son witnessed it to the girl behind him in algebra class in high school. He gave her ultimate questions. She kind of blew him off. Three years later, he was in college and visiting a friend at, at a college. And on the refrigerator in this person's apartment, there was a picture of some kids in Reformed University Fellowship. And he goes, hey, what's this girl doing there? Oh, she became a Christian. And she's a part of Reformed University Fellowship. But she was the girl who sat behind him who didn't want anything to do with the gospel first time around. But he planted the seed and others watered and God gave the growth. Let's pray.